You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. For the sake of those who might be um, listening or watching online, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you're here. Years ago, I heard someone at a leadership conference say that the key to casting vision was not to convince people how great things will be when we get over there. He said the key to casting vision is to convince people that here is no longer acceptable. That people get much more motivated if they believe that here is no longer acceptable than they do by you telling them how awesome things are going to be if we can get over there. But I think sometimes the challenge in that, for those of us who follow Jesus, or maybe if you're not a Christian yet, but you're considering becoming a follower of Jesus, sometimes for us to think that where we are is no longer acceptable just kind of feels wrong. And so, like in Philippians 4.11, Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. And 1 Timothy 6.6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews 3.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never lead you nor forsake you. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from the place of selfish ambition. And so sometimes... I think, especially if you're someone who's kind of been immersed in church culture for a long time, you can feel like, well, what I'm supposed to be is content with what I have, and I'm not supposed to be ambitious. I'm supposed to just trust the Lord, and so where I am is where He has me, and that's okay. But if that's the case, I think as we remember back about some of the things that God has done, then How do we wrap our heads around things like God redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt and driving out the inhabitants of the promised land that Israel might have a place of her own? Or or how do we, like what box do we put Jesus sending his followers out to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth? Or Paul's relentless preaching of the gospel and planting of churches in the New Testament? Or even if we look back at church history, if we're always to be content and we're never to be ambitious, then why can we trace the legacy of a lot of things like hospitals and public schools to the efforts of the church? And and why don't Christians take the same posture, say, as Hindus, where if we look at somebody who's um, in a really bad situation in life and we just say, well, that's just you getting what you deserve. And so you just got to kind of work that out on your own. Or even something like, why do Christians pray? I mean, isn't interceding with God that he might do something just kind of the manifestation of discontent? We want something to change. So it seems like maybe these two things are at odds with each other. Or could it be that perhaps there actually is a place in God's economy for discontent? Could it be that there's a time when discontent is holy, is right and good and from the Lord? Is there ever a time when it's okay 
for a Christian to look around and say, this, here, these circumstances, the state of things is no longer acceptable. I think there is. I think Nehemiah 1 is a picture of that type of holy discontentment. And I think that it can help us to check our own hearts and to ask ourselves perhaps some hard questions about why we are or maybe why we're not discontent and whether or not that comes from a place of, of holiness, a, a place of being in line with God's will or not. We're starting a new sermon series. We're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah. Why don't you follow along? I'm going to be in Nehemiah 1. If you've got a Bible, it might help you this morning to keep it open through the sermon. You can, I'm going to refer back to this passage several times. Here's Nehemiah 1, beginning with verse 1. Words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. To make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. To the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I see at least four insights into holy discontentment in Nehemiah 1. Four descriptors, if you will, of the type of discontentment that God can use in our lives and perhaps maybe might even be from God. First one is this, that holy discontentment sees what others miss. It sees what others miss. If you look back at verses 2 and 3, 
Nehemiah said, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, a little context. In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered Judah and sent many of her, especially leading citizens um, and leading youth, into exile in Babylon. 539, King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon, and the next year in 538 B.C., he issued a decree that the Jews could return to their homeland. And so they started to do that. It took them two or three years. They kind of trickled in slowly. They've been gone for 70 years. You can't just pick up and pack and move overnight. So over the course of the next two or three years, they returned. You can read about all of that. If you back up one book from Nehemiah, it's Ezra. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 cover all that. Ezra the priest arrives in Jerusalem about 458 B.C. And then 13 years later... In 445 B.C., Nehemiah arrives, and he serves there as something like a governor. <clears throat> so he arrives almost 80 years after the Jews had started to return from exile. So as he's writing in the events that we're going to track over the next few weeks, there have already been Jews coming back down into Jerusalem for 80 years. We'll get there next week in Chapter 2, he'll arrive. In chapter 1, he's asked some friends about the city. The great trouble and shame of the people was all-encompassing. Politically, they were struggling on two fronts. To their north, the rulers in Samaria resented that they were returning to Jerusalem because they didn't want Jerusalem to become a second center of power and, and influence. And so they didn't like that the Jews were coming back to Jerusalem. And locally, as they returned, they found that they had to press their claims for the land against the people who had kind of started living there in their 70-year absence. And so they had to say, like, no, 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 th- th- this really is my house. Get out. People were saying, well, bro, we've been here 65 years. I'm not real sure what to... It's a problem. They're politically pressed, socially and religiously. They returned from exile to find a culture that no longer represented their values, that no longer obeyed the Torah, that no longer worshipped Yahweh in the way that people had when they had left. Economically, the city's walls being destroyed was a massive issue because they could not protect themselves from raiders who might seek to come in. And so they didn't have the appropriate defensive measures. They didn't have the ability to feel secure. And it had been that way for almost a hundred years. So why does Nehemiah weep and mourn for days? This is not a new situation. It's been this way. I mean, the exile's 150 years previous. Like, what, what's the... Why the weeping in the morning for days? I think it's because Nehemiah saw what others missed. I think Nehemiah saw the issue behind the issue. I think he saw the cause not just the symptom. 
And Nehemiah saw that the real issue wasn't political, it wasn't social, it wasn't economic. The real issue was not that their architectural defense system had collapsed. The real issue is that the glory of God was not being reflected in the state of God's people. The covenant promises of God appeared to not be true. As the world looked in, it appeared that all those promises that God had made, that all that glory that used to exist was, in fact, no more. Israel had, was supposed to be God's light to the nations, and it appeared to have gone dark. And Nehemiah saw what others missed, that the great trouble and shame of the people of God the broken down and destroyed state of the city of God said something about God himself that was not true. And that was the problem. And that was no longer acceptable to Nehemiah. Holy discontent sees what others miss. And once you see it, it becomes a spiritual burden. So where others see too many people moving here from Ohio, you see neighbors fighting loneliness and struggling financially, disconnected spiritually and in need of a church. Where others see a boss that's always edgy and overbearing and insensitive, you see someone whose marriage is strained who's struggling in this economy to be able to hire enough quality people to meet the demands of the people above him and who just needs somewhere where she can feel accepted. Where others see an immigration crisis, you see God bringing the nations to you and you want to learn another language. Where others see a dying rural church, you see an opportunity to revitalize and replant a church in your hometown. Where others see too much traffic on Clements Ferry Road, you sit in your office writing a sermon, looking out the window, and thinking we have got to reach more people because there are thousands and thousands of them driving by every single day. Holy discontent sees what others miss, and the seeing becomes a spiritual burden, and it propels you deeper into the mission of God. Second, holy discontent grips the heart. Sees what others miss, and it takes hold of your heart. Grips it. Nehemiah's response in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and continued praying to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was heartbroken. And it stayed with him. He couldn't shake it. He couldn't just put it down anymore. It, it stuck. The state of things 
gripped his heart in a way that it hadn't before. Something had changed and it wouldn't let him go. It's the same type of response that we see from Moses in Exodus 2. He goes out and he looks over the state of Israel in captivity in Egypt and the heavy burdens that had been laid on them by the Pharaoh. It's the same response that we see from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 8 and 9 as he hears of God's coming judgment and weeps. It's the same response that we see from Jesus in Luke 19 as he looks over the city of Jerusalem and weeps. It's the same response that we see from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians when he laments this daily anxiety that he has for all the churches. This is what holy discontent does. It grips the heart. My question is, what breaks your heart? What, like what breaks your heart? When you think about the places you go, you think about the people that you're around every day. When you, when you think about our church or our community or our city, when you think about your friends or your family, what breaks your heart? What, what is it that you see that others miss and it has gripped your heart in a way that maybe is totally new? Maybe you can't quite explain it. But you can't shake it. This is why I'm in ministry. 2008 and 9, I was in the marketplace. Through a season of extended prayer, God just totally gripped my heart in a brand new way. I didn't really understand it at the time. It took a while to wrestle through it. It was completely new to me. But I could not shake it. And I don't mean your heart being gripped like, you know, do you see the new Audi RS7? Woo! Can't get it out of my head. Like that's not, I don't mean that. I mean your heart being gripped in a way where you think, this situation breaks God's heart, and now it breaks mine, and I can't let it go. Holy, holy discontent is this spiritual burden that grips your heart and compels it to be more aligned with God's heart. That's what's happening to Nehemiah. Third, holy discontent is humble before God. It sees, becomes aware of, with spiritual eyes, things that other people are missing. It arrests the heart and brings you to a place of being humble before God. I think what Nehemiah does first is really instructive. His first response is not strategic. His first response is not action. His first response is spiritual. Look at verses 5. Look at verse 5. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's who God is. Right? He, like, Nehemiah, like you're great and awesome. You are the covenant keeper. You are the one who loves steadfastly. That's who you are. 
And he contrasts that in verse 6. I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And it isn't just generic. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you command. Like, that's who we are. And I see who you are, God, and I see with clarity who we are. And I recognize the infinite gap between the two. That is a man who is humbled before God. That, I would suggest, is a holy humility. I have seen the difference between you and me. And as I look around and I'm discontent, I know the issue is me, not you. I'm aware that there's a problem, but the problem is not God. The problem is me and my father's house and my people. And our failure to do things, that is humility before the face of God. And I would suggest to you that discontentment without humility is destructive. You're full of discontentment without humility. It will destroy you. Because it will push your heart to anger and bitterness and disillusionment. And you will begin to get to a place where you feel entitled and jealous and misunderstood. And you'll start to use words like unfair. And you'll start to use phrases that begin with, well, if God is real, then why? Why isn't this different? Why hasn't he done something about that? Why won't he fix this? If that's the case, but a heart that is humble before God understands that God doesn't owe you anything. He is the creator. We are the creation. He is infinite. We are finite. He holds the entire universe together by the word of his power. You can't live four minutes without the air that he provides. Holy discontent will always lead you to a place where you humble yourself before God because you recognize that you aren't owed change. Friends, if you think God owes you, you will never be content. Never. There is not enough money. There is no relationship no change to your body, no fresh start that will ever lead you to a place of peace if you think God owes it to you. It will never be enough because your discontentment is about you, not God. It's selfish ambition, not holy discontent. And I don't believe that God will honor it. But Psalm 34, 7 says, You delight yourself in the Lord, And he will give you the desires of your heart. When your heart is 
gripped by the things that grip God's heart, when your eyes see the things that God sees, when you humble yourself before him, then you're in a place where God can use you and bless you and do more for you and through you than you can possibly ask or imagine. Because God delights to accomplish his will. He delights to fulfill his promises. He delights to glorify himself by blessing his people. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. This is his delight. He is not trying to keep good things from you. It's a lie that Satan told our first parents in the garden. He doesn't want you to have good things. No, the chronicler says his eyes run to and fro trying to find somebody to bless. Trying to find somebody whose heart breaks for the things that his heart breaks for. Whose eyes see the spiritual things that he sees. So what you're going to find in the weeks ahead, if you're with us for this Nehemiah study, is that God is going to do some awesome things through Nehemiah. And very often as people study the book of Nehemiah, what happens is Nehemiah gets held up as an example of a great leader and a great vision caster and a great strategic planner. And all of that may be true. All of that is true. But the book of Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is about God keeping his covenant promises to his people. That's what Nehemiah is about. All Nehemiah does is he just sees what God sees and he aligns his heart with God's heart and he goes to work where God's already working. It's just God keeping his promises to his people. And the key to Nehemiah's success The key to your and my success, if we would dare to have the audacity to try and make a difference in our families or our communities or our world, the key is not becoming more like Nehemiah. The key is God. We have to humble ourselves before him. and That becomes the place where he can work in and through us. And our holy discontent. One more. One more insight into holy discontentment that we see in Nehemiah 1 is that it's dependent on God. Nehemiah is honest about who God is and about who he is, who his people are. But it does not drive him to despair or shame. It does not drive him to self-loathing. He does not throw his hands up and say, Well, I guess that's just what we deserve. We're pretty miserable. Bless our hearts. Maybe we get up there, he'll forget. Like that, that's not, that is not what Nehemiah's humility does. His humility before God leads him to be dependent on God. Verses 8 through 11. Listen to his appeal. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. He's just repeating the words of God back to God. You said, 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And they were, so he did. The exile didn't happen because God was unfaithful. It happened because he was faithful. He said, if you act this way, this was going to happen. And they did, so he did. Nehemiah says, but. You also said, but. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. As much as Nehemiah knows that the problem is him and his family and his people, as much as Nehemiah knows God doesn't owe us anything, he also knows the solution is still God. The solution to the problem that I see that has so gripped my heart where I would say this is no longer acceptable. The solution is still the providence and the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. What Nehemiah is after, what he is dependent on, is that God will simply act in accordance with his own nature and character. He is dependent on God just fulfilling his promises. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man's the king. That's where we'll be next week. Holy discontentment is always dependent on God to do what only God can do. Notice what Nehemiah does not do. He doesn't bargain with God. He doesn't say, God, if you'll just rebuild Jerusalem, we'll... He doesn't... He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't make promises that he can't keep. Lord, if you'll just help us now, we will never do that again. He doesn't give the Lord his resume. He, he doesn't say, Heavenly Father, you know I've suffered low these many years. You know that I keep inviting King Artaxerxes to my small group. You, you know that I had an opportunity to put some poison in his cup. I'm the cupbearer of the king. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Don't you think that I've earned? He just appeals to God being God. All he does is he says, this is who you are. And this is what you promised. Would you do it? That's his appeal. Can I tell you, just in full transparency, that sometimes I think I pray to God but depend on me. Like, if I'm just honest, I think there are times when I'm hopeful that God will bless what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it. Because I've already made up my mind. And I'm not sure 
whether or not my heart always takes a posture of dependence on God. And that is not the posture that I want to have. Not just because I'm your pastor, but because I'm a Christian. I don't think that's the posture that I want my heart to have. That's not the posture of a heart that is humble before God, independent on God. That's not holy discontent. That's just discontent. And I don't believe that God blesses that. And it might be that God will bless my ideas and bless my efforts. Maybe. But it, he definitely blesses his ideas and his efforts. I know he's going to do that. And so the posture of my heart, the posture of our hearts should be, Father, this is your promise, and I know I don't deserve it. I know that I haven't earned it, but would you just do it for the sake of your name? Then do it through me, if you would will. Remember Exodus 33? Israelites have been wandering around the desert because of their disobedience. They finally get to the edge of the promised land, and God says to Moses, I tell you what, y'all go on, I ain't going. You can go. You can have all the milk and the honey, but I'm not going with you. you, you I, I'm not going to break my promise. I, I told you I was bringing you to a land, and I am. But I'm not going. Moses says in Exodus 33, 5, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I don't want the promise without the one who made it. I don't want your stuff without you. He says in Exodus 33, 16, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we're distinct? We, we want to be distinct from every other people in the land, and that depends on you. we got to have you with us. Moses was dependent on God and the presence of God. He would rather die in the desert with God than live in the promised land without him. That's dependence. That's who I want to be. That's who I want us to be. If you're not a Christian yet, and you heard a little bit of this earlier, but can I just tell you that this church exists because we have a holy discontent that there are people close to us but far from God. We look around us, we see people like you, people that we love, people that we like, and it is not acceptable to us that you don't know the loving kindness and steadfast covenant-keeping God that we know. Our prayer is that whatever discontent you feel in your life, whatever discontent you're wrestling with deep inside, that it might find its fulfillment and its rest in Christ. That's our prayer. If you're already a Christian, I want to encourage you to open your eyes and see what others miss. I want to encourage you to be open to what it is that the Holy Spirit might be laying on your heart in the season that you're in. I want you to, to cultivate with all of us together uh, in your mind, in your heart, in your life, a humility before God and a dependence on God. Because as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, if we will do that, if you will do that, 
There is no limit to what the Lord can do in and through your life. Let's pray. Father, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit may be stirring in our hearts right now, I pray that by his power he would not let go of them. For those of us who might be discontent, will you show us whether or not it's holy? If it is, Would you fulfill your promises through us? Allow us to be a part of the solution that you have planned for that. For those of us who are perfectly content, would you just radically disrupt that? Would you bring us to our knees in humility before you? Give us a holy discontent that causes us to weep and to mourn for days, to fast and to pray. Would you help us as a church? Yes, to celebrate, but to never be content. We are in a community that is exploding. And we believe that the people who are around us in our city, our family, our workplaces, our schools need you. And so we ask for your help. We ask that our heart would reflect your heart and that our eyes would see what you see. Would you do it for the sake of your name, in which we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.